Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Mark Brody, the author of The Invisible Emperor, Napoleon on Elba from Exile to Escape. And the book was published by Penguin Press in 2018. Hi there, Mark. Hi, how's it going? Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. And you are, I feel like you should get a prize for this. You're the first second time author or author of a second book to speak to me on new books in French studies. So among other things, congratulations on the book and for being my first return customer interviewee. Thank you. And I'm honored. And that's uh, honored with a U because we are fellow Canadians talking <laughs> that's to one right. another. So. So, Mark, the last time I spoke with you was back in 2017, and I asked you then, um, when we were talking about your book on Monte Carlo, how you got interested uh, in working on France. So I don't think we need to do that again, but I would like to hear more about what you've been doing since you wrote that book, where you're situated. I know you're working sort of outside the university context. So anything you'd like to share about... Uh, the kind of path your professional life has taken since you finished the book on Monte Carlo, including the publication of this new book. Sure. So 2017, the Monte Carlo book had been out for a few months, and I was probably then just in my last quarter of teaching at Stanford. I'd come to Stanford as a postdoc and then kind of transferred into uh, a lecturing role in in based in the Department of French, but also with courses in history and art history, mm-hmm. and um, sort of making you know cobbling that together as one does as an adjunct, which was both you know totally awesome and also totally terrifying. And uh, there was a lot going on, and my wife and I were living in San Francisco, which was quite expensive, and the Stanford thing was was going really well, and the writing was taking up a lot of my time. And, you know, a certain night in November of 2016, after a certain election, we decided maybe the time had finally come to, uh, Mm -hmm. to move back to Canada. And we were thinking about starting family and uh, everything kind of coalesced to, to bring the Stanford time to an end. And I was also kind of getting more deeply into this Napoleon book. So since I think actually around the time we talked, I've been I've been writing full time, um, mm-hmm. which so far has been great. I do miss the classroom, but this is yeah, this is where we are right now. You know, the first book, Mark, making Monte Carlo a history of speculation and spectacle, uh, that was published by Simon and Schuster in 2016, and now this new book, The Invisible Emperor. They're both books that I feel like I can talk about your oeuvre. No, <laughs> they're both books okay. that uh, that are so readable. I can read both books and it's very clear the training that you have, the research methodology, the approach that you have, your familiarity with the scholarship, all of that is there. 
And then there are also these books that are incredibly uh, fun to read. Uh, And I wondered if you might have a few words to say about your approach to writing and the way you think about your writing as writing that's not just for a strictly speaking academic audience. Yeah, I guess for me, it starts with the research, of course, and I wouldn't research in the way I do if it weren't for my training, both as uh, in the Masters of French Studies at NYU and then as a PhD in uh, history and visual culture at USC, totally formed how I think as a researcher and a writer. So it's always been about that training. It just happens to be that this is what I'm drawn to. What I'm drawn to are stories. Mm-hmm. But it is through the research that I do my thinking. So I'm, it's just the fun for me is being in the archives, I guess. And then it, it might just be that the way that I process things is through a kind of narrative lens rather than more of an essayistic way of, of thinking and writing. So it, that, that just kind of lent itself to a place, uh, you know, these trade publishers. And I'm, I'm really happy. I get to kind of do the work that I want to do, which is, again, for me, going to going to these places and getting in the archives and then telling, telling the story with compelling characters and settings and all the rest, but also hopefully doing something that is new and presents some sort of new uh, argument or idea into the world. This is, and this is just the way I I get to do it. Um, I know, well, I went back and listened not to the whole interview uh, that we did uh, a couple of years ago, but uh, to the end where I asked you what you were working on now, well, then, <laughs> and uh, this project on, on Napoleon, it was just kind of interesting to go back and listen to those moments where you were talking about a work in progress. I don't know, though, that we really got into how you came to this project when we talked about it for a minute or so at the end of that last interview. So the first book was some version reworking of your dissertation, right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then this idea for Napoleon. So where did that come from? I guess that, you know, in answering that question, it's also bringing to light this idea of my dual identity as somebody who thinks of things as through scholarly training, but then is trying to write toward a more general audience. The question of Napoleon on Elba came to me through just general research into French history as I was teaching and as I was learning, you know, you learn, as one does, if you're immersed in French history, you learn about Napoleon, of course, mm-hmm. and his career. And there are all of these facets to it and all of these episodes. And one of the ones that had stuck out to me was this first exile on Elba. And the typical treatment of that in, say, one of the sprawling biographies you might get to read, it's it's usually like a few pages or a little chapter. It's an interlude. It's always been an interlude because there's mm-hmm. a lot going on before and after, before Napoleon abdicates. He gets it's the empire is at its height, and he gets defeated by the Sixth Coalition. And there's the dramatic abdication, and then he goes into exile for ten months, and then he comes back, and it's Waterloo in the Hundred Days, and it's or sorry, the Hundred Days and Waterloo, and those mm-hmm. are very well known dramatic episodes that are really exciting for people to focus on. And so the the, the Elba chapter there gets short shrift because it's like, well, he goes to this island, and not much happens. He's there. And then he escapes. So what do we really need to know about that? And that to me was like such a fascinating <laughs> question. I mean, it so happens that it takes place on a tiny Mediterranean island that I would you know, love to go <laughs> visit for research, which was always, you know, it's, I think maybe I'm realizing now two books in the subconsciously, I'm drawn towards these uh, places that are, are kind of in nice 
parts of the world that might be the Canadian <laughs> from in me. Monte Carlo to right? Elba. Yeah. I mean, not that I want to hang out in Monaco necessarily, but adjacent to Monaco is not too bad for me for a, a Canadian, you know, sun-seeking Canadian. There might be that to it, but you know, that's kind of part of the fun. But no, especially this idea of like, here's this totally overlooked chapter, and the fact that nothing happens is nonsense, right? So there's always something that happens, and when you have somebody as uh, complicated and dynamic as as Napoleon, uh, not to speak too euphemistically, I mean, somebody as, as troubling and troubled as Napoleon as well, inevitably there's going to be a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And then as I, as happens to anybody who gets into any ar- kind of archive, once you start doing some digging, it's totally, you know, bizarre and strange what you find. And it's totally different than received understanding because nobody's really bothered to look that closely. I mean, there really was no book on this particular subject. I think there was one from uh, somebody who wrote it for Oxford in 82, 1982. So, mm-hmm. it, and that's pretty kind of by the numbers, you know, um, chronological account, not really what I was going to go for. And so it was wide open. And so that was, that was kind of where I got to jump in. I kept thinking, I mean, I thought about it when I first heard about the book and when I started reading it and as I was reading it, I kept thinking about the moment in my modern French history survey, you know, when I talk about Napoleon's abdication. And then I, yeah, I have, I think it's a sentence. Right. And he was, on Elba. I think I show a, a map and show where it point to Elba, <laughs> say he was there for a while. And then, yeah, that's it. Then, you know, flash forward to 100 days Waterloo. So yeah, I kept thinking about that and cursing you a little thinking, oh, now I'm going to have to spend more time because it's so much more interesting. <laughs> and I just want to ask you a little bit, more about that. And I guess playing off and asking you about the title, you know, this idea of the invisible emperor, if you could say a little bit about why the book is called that and how it relates to this idea of looking at this moment. Sure. And I I love that idea of like this, now you have to add a slide to your PowerPoint presentation because I have the same PowerPoint presentation. And that's kind of why so many of us get into history is because you get that first year PowerPoint class and you realize in between each slide, there are multitudes of stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what history is, and that's the study of history. What is what is so fascinating about it, at least for me, and I'm sure for so many other people. And you know, I always thought about it in terms of, uh, okay, so I, I I'm not a sur- I don't identify as a surfer, but I do like to surf. I'm just not very good at it. <laughs> um, and I th- I always think of this anal- analogy of uh, I think of waves. You know, when you're surfing, a lot of surfing is sitting there waiting for the next wave to come in, and that is actually sometimes a lot more fun than actually catching the wave, especially if you're not that good like me. Um, <laughs> sitting there, you're still part of the ocean and you're feeling and you're, and you're out there and you're hearing all the things and seeing the sights of the, of the ocean, but you're not catching a wave. And I think that's also, there's, there is something to be said about that with the study of history. You know, we tend to focus on the waves, on the crests of these waves. And in between is just different part of the ocean. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just kind of different. And I think that might be as I start to develop as a writer and have a few projects now under my belt starting to see like, oh, that might be what I'm kind of looking at and where my sweet spot might be is like these in between, supposedly in between moments and thinking, I mean, that's not like nobody's thought of that before, but I think that's just Mm -hmm. where I kind of get to. And so that plays into this idea of the invisible emperor, this unseen Napoleon. Um, and again, that's to bring it back to my scholarly training. I mean, that's, I, I was trained uh, in visual studies, visual culture. I always think visually, and I think about media and I think about image making 
uh, and the roles they play in history. And, and to me, there was this idea of here's Napoleon who is probably, you know, among the most heavily mediated figures of, of his era. You know, people are seeing him in character, in sculpture, you know, in painting, obviously. And there is this part of his life where he's actually physically removed from the main stages of power. He's put on this tiny little island <laughs> of 12,000 people after having ruled 80 million people. And what does that do to the Napoleonic aura, let's say, mm -hmm. at the time? I mean, you know, looking in hindsight, obviously there's that story as well. But at the time, 1814, when he's there, could that have played some factor in his ability to, to come back? You know, and that was what I was trying to play with in this narrative was the idea of somebody out of sight kind of capitalizing on that in a way, a leader capitalizing on the idea of mystery, of, of removal, of exile. Um, and then if I can just go on further with that point, mm -hmm. the second side of that equation is, of course, what happens to him on Elba itself. How is he seen on Elba? Mm -hmm. And what's and what I learned uh, as I studied more of the history of this moment is that there was another great little twist here, which is while he's in exile, he's actually seen at closer proximity mm -hmm. by more people than at any other time in his life. I mean, that, and that includes the exile in St. Helena. There, there are a few kind of choice uh, people who stay with him after the abdication who, who you know, think they're going to kind of rise in his little inner circle. And they all see him and interact with him on this daily basis in this totally bizarre circumstance where he's totally brought low. And it's very domestic. It's very intimate. And they all write about it, of course, because it's, you know, why wouldn't you? So we have these great diaries from people who were working for him, people who were on Elba, people who came to visit him on Elba. And uh, lastly, the Scottish uh, officer, Neil Campbell, mm -hmm. this is a young guy who's this kind of the de, the de facto warden of Elba, who's kind of there to watch Napoleon, has this detailed diary that I got to draw on as well. Well, maybe before we get into more of the details of the book itself, I should not be remiss and try to get you to to give us a little bit of the the timeline here and a bit of an explanation, like for those listeners and all of my students, former students who are unfamiliar with the details here, um, you know, how does Napoleon end up on Elba? How is this decision even, this set of decisions, I guess, even made? Can you, can we kind of back up and just say, okay, what's the story of Napoleon being exiled to, to Elba? Okay, so this is the most embarrassing part of my talking about this book, is that now, after having thought of this for so many years, I don't, I still don't know. I just don't understand why they sent him to Elba. There this was is weird. It's totally weird. Even, you know, I think it was weird then. It's weird now. <laughs> it's a lot of moving parts and a lot. Of, I think people are making it up as they go along because it's, there is this coalition of, uh, you know, there's Russians and British and, you know, it's complicated because, because the Austrians, Napoleon is, is in his second marriage to Marie-Louise, who's the Archduchess, the Habsburg Empire. I mean, it's totally complicated. So mm -hmm. anyway, the, the short answer is there are a bunch of people looking, you know, the, there is this coalition who are ousting Napoleon. And I don't think they really thought of what was going to happen once he was out, mm. uh, how they were going to manage it, you know. And they can't and, kill him. And they can't kill him. That's the other thing is like people say, well, why didn't they kill him? It seems so obvious. It's Napoleon. Like, obviously, he's going to come back. And I think on the one hand, there's the sense that among sovereigns, you just, you, you didn't, they didn't want to set, set the precedence mm. of executing somebody defeated 
in war, especially so close after the, the revolution and the terror. And I think that there was this idea that any sane person in Napoleon's place would have just gone into quiet retirement. Mm. And that's the other part of what interested me about this episode was why didn't he, let alone why did they send him up to Elba, why didn't he stay there? I and mean, he even after the fact said it was the best you know setup he ever had. Hmm. He was totally free to do whatever he wanted. Uh, he had, you know, his finances were pretty good. He was devoid of any kind of responsibility. And <laughs> yeah, it sounds awesome. <laughs> I want to go to Elba. <laughs> if you're ever lucky enough to get there, I mean, it's quite beautiful. And, and so that was, that was part of the mystery too. But, but in terms of, you know, the very nuts and bolts, there was, you know, Tsar Alexander, Tsar Alexander came up with, um, in working with Colin Cour, with uh, Napoleon's kind of aide-de-camp, um, toward this idea of an island exile. Islands have always been these fascinating places of, you know, separated by water. And there was the idea that that's sort of removed from the mainland and therefore out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, you know, islands are powerful places uh, symbolically. And so I think they, the island thing was important. And there was this little insignificant, supposedly insignificant place that was kind of close enough to watch him, but uh, far enough to keep him out of, you know, he's not in, he's not in mainland in the, on the continent. But they don't just send him there. They give it to him. Yeah, They're exactly. Cool. <laughs> and it's the like, thing that I don't get. You're an Elbin farmer. And then one day Napoleon shows up and is like, guess what? I'm in charge. It is totally, totally bizarre. One of those very strange things. And so his status there is what, Mark? He's... He is technically the emperor of emperor. Elba. Okay. He is of emperor Elba. of Elba. Yeah. In, and for the duration of his life, he could not uh, pass it down to any heir. That was the one stipulation. Um, and that's the, you know, another weird little nerdy historical fact is, you know, while he's in exile, they have the Congress of Vienna to sort of think about how to navigate this post-Napoleonic Europe. And technically Napoleon as the recognized emperor of Elba should have been invited to the Congress to, you know, because he's, he's a kind of ruler of a, of a sovereign place. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously that wasn't going to happen, but yeah, it's totally bizarre. He becomes emperor, and I think his official title was Emperor and Ruler of Elba. And is it like a titular thing? How much does he actually do as emperor on Elba? Like, how much is he sort of a figurehead, and how much does he really intervene in the goings-on and management of the island? So that was exactly the subject where it was... I realized you can never say nothing happened because it's the complete opposite. It's, it's Napoleon, first of all. So <laughs> you have to imagine an, an enormous amount of energy mm-hmm. and, and he did spend that energy constantly. I mean, he was doing a million things. The day he arrives, he's on a hours long survey to find out all of the, you know, defense possibilities and possibilities for commerce, possibilities for where his house is going to be. So he's, he spends a lot of time. Okay. He's, he's scared. He's going to get be assassinated. So there's a lot of thinking about, uh, he trains a small army. He develops a, a little kind of make- an army. Yeah. I mean, he develops a little makeshift Navy. Uh, he fortifies as much as he can, but then there's these really touching moments where it is a lot of him just doing kind of everyday stuff, mm-hmm. um, but to the nth degree. So he's gardening. You know, we a lot of people like to garden. I like to garden. Napoleon's 
version of gardening is to have the terrace of his villa completely uh, redone so that there's a giant N done in, uh, I can't even remember, I think it was heliotrope or something, but is that possible? Some sort of shrubbery of, Don't ask of me. <laughs> a giant N, you know, and then there's a lot of him making the most minute rules and regulations about, you know, what kinds of foods you should be feeding to your dogs and I mean, it's just totally bizarre. There's there's the kind of ledger of all the all the things he's all the laws he's doing and all his orders, and they're just all over the place. I mean, a million different things from the most minute details. So he he did not rest. He was not in retirement. Right. How how old is he when he gets there? Um, offhand, I think he's he's mid forties, early to mid forties. And so, I mean, how do you think about the book, Mark? as situated in relationship to, let's say, political history, uh, military history, which is, you know, you say Napoleon, the number of times I've been somewhere where somebody's dad usually, (laughs) you know, um, oh, you do French history, and then I'm listening to some kind of mini lecture on Napoleon or getting asked questions that I don't know the answer to. Now I can tell them a lot about Elba. That, you know, I think of Napoleon as the kind of quintessential military historical phenomenon, right? I love it. I love that it's the subject where you get cornered into talking about it. Yeah, that's right. So how do you think about this project? And I mean, I even think about your uh, intended readership and, you know, who might be picking up a book like this, how you think about the relationship between what you're trying to do here and how your, your project is necessarily a part of the epic machine that is Napoleon studies, Napoleon history. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're talking hundreds of thousands of books about Napoleon. Yeah, Nobody, I mean, nobody's crying out for another book about Napoleon. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny. I remember the week before leaving for graduate school for my master's, uh, I was at the dentist and he said, Oh, French, you know, you're doing French studies. Are they still writing books about the French revolution? That was his question. Like, do they still have something to say about the French Revolution? And I think that's it. There are these yeah. there are these these moments of like that they are both totally overdone, and yet also there are endless possibilities. Sure. Um, so right off the bat, you know, I'm not a Napoleon buff. It's it was not somebody that inherently fascinated me. It was really about Elba. Elba was always to me just this great story and mystery. That's what drew me in mm. from the outset. You know. I don't, this is hopefully will be a book for people who have no interest in Napoleon and the, the highest praise, you know, that I've ever received is people, you know, there was one review, I think it was in the Seattle times. She opened up by saying, you know, the opening sentence is like, there's nothing I could care about less than in the world than Napoleon. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh gosh, you know, or some, I'm paraphrasing something to that effect. And then she goes on and, and said that she liked the book. And so that's exactly what I was trying to do was mm-hmm. for, even for myself, you know, it's like find something that is about much more than just another Napoleon book. And yeah, I, I certainly would be, would have been shocked if you had told me in graduate school that I would be writing anything that could be labeled military history. I mean, it's not how I thought of myself. And yet you could say it, it is a kind of military history in that it's a military history where there's no killing and dying. Um, and again, to go back to that maybe uh, wishy-washy surfing analogy, I said it, it is it is the calm between the waves, mm-hmm. and so that maybe there's that that's a kind of military history 
in and of itself, uh, you know, a history of the in-between uh, of these epic battles, you know, there are still these kind of similarly epic in a different way moments. So we've got Napoleon exiled to Elba under, I guess there's a little bit of a mysterious quality to it. And as you say, he's there for 10 months. It's 10 months, right? Mm-hmm. And a number of things happen in the book. The book is structured by the seasons. And something you said just a moment ago about this really being a book about Elba uh, makes me think, again, I wanted to ask you about the structure of the book anyway. But the idea that so much of this is about the place. And I remember now that when you talked about this project, when we talked about Monte Carlo, there was this kind of thread of you like these tiny, maybe neglected in the historiography or whatever uh, places, and that Elba is maybe the second of these if Monte Carlo was the first. So, yeah, I guess I it's somewhere in here is a question about landscape and the space of Elba as, you know, the main character here of this book. And, well, you went there, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess I want to ask you about past and present, you know, what do we know about Elba <laughs> before Napoleon? How does Napoleon change Elba? And then, yeah, what was it like to to do research there? What's the status of all this, this story on Elba these days? Um, yeah, so a sort of broad question about, sure. about Elba. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess we can start with the idea of the seasons. That was, um, you know, I watched, this is going to sound really pretentious, but as I was reading, I watched this, I happened to be watching, or as I was writing, I happened to be watching this Fellini movie, Amar Cord, mm. which is also based loosely, the narrative is based loosely around the seasons and it's set in this village. And I guess one of the, my takeaway from the movie was that, you know, and it's in the face of, of Mussolini and fascism, um, certain things, especially in let's say village life remain unchanged, right? There, there are just these deeper, uh, customs and mores and no matter what, dramatic events are happening there are certain things that remain the same and you know the idea of harvest and seasons and all mm-hmm. those kinds of things what you do at certain seasons are are going to be uh are going to repeat and so i liked the idea for this story of the most profound upheaval that has ever happened in the history of this island being arranged around this natural cycle of like you know he comes and then he goes and there are certain things on Elba that do remain unchanged. Mm. Uh, so there, both of those things were in play. And that just once I unlocked that, interestingly enough, through watching this movie, it gave me a structure for, for the book itself. I understood then what I was trying to get at, which was precisely this idea of, I do trace the history of you know, this, this, this island before, but it really is like an, an enormous shock. You know, you wake up one day and then all of a sudden it's Napoleon himself, you know, the most <laughs> famous, hated, whatever you want to use your adjective person on the globe is, is now on this place that is as large as Staten Island and it's, and it's his, right. And you, you know, you know, regardless of your station or where you are on the Island, you, you would likely see him because he was, he was out a lot riding, you know, never alone, but uh, always with his entourage doing this or that on the Island. Uh, the other strange thing, people would just come as tourists to Elba and, and Napoleon would receive them. And there are these legitimate documents of people who have said, I had coffee with Napoleon today in his garden. And we talked about polygamy 
and we talked about, you know, he was having problems with his um, health, you know, and like, it's just weird. It's totally yeah. strange. But those kinds of moments were just archival gold for me. Mm-hmm. But I guess to, to more you know, adequately answer what you're asking, it was very much about place. It was without trying to be, you know, still maintain some dynamism in the narrative. It is just a study of Elba in, to some degree. That, that's really the nucleus, nucleus of the book. And so that did require me being there. Now, I joke uh, that, of course, that was not the hardest research trip. But uh, it was totally necessary because even with these two centuries of remove, there were just certain ineffable, I guess, is, is the only way I could say it, certain qualities that I think seeped into the book somehow or other. Mm. And so just being there and seeing the size of his villa, which is very modest, you know, for instance, seeing the, seeing the proximity of where Napoleon lived compared to, say, uh, just the innkeeper, right, the local innkeeper or fishmonger, whoever it might be, they're really close. I mean, they would have heard each other. They would have smelt each other's cooking. <laughs> Those kinds of things really informed the, the history that I was trying to chronicle because then, then it, was, it was very much about the spatial history for sure. And is it a quiet presence today, Mark, or in the last, you know, recently that, or is it just like Napoleon keychains? It's both. So, so I, I I misunderstood is like Elba sort of quiet and Elba is relative to these islands that are Italian islands that are just gems and are increasingly overrun because they're so beautiful. Elba's kind of fairly quiet in Mm. that regard. It's, it's long been a a favorite uh, German travel area and i think that's because of the beaches um but i I very rarely heard uh, english spoken Hmm. and it's the roads are beautiful the infrastructure is amazing which i think is a legacy of napoleon's time there because he really did do a lot of work on the infrastructure even in his limited time there but in terms of are the napoleon keychains yes it's everything you would expect there is in portofarrio the especially the, the the capital there's a lot of napoleon to be bought and sold Napoleon right. beer, Napoleon honey, Napoleon soap. And, and apparently I, I learned that the, his residences on Elba are among the more, uh, I think after the Uffizi, number two for uh, cultural sites in Tuscany that, in terms of, terms of visitors. So there's definitely a healthy wow. tourism economy based on his short time there that otherwise wouldn't have been there. So I think people are profiting from that. But I think, as I mentioned right at the very end of the book, there's also this sense of pride even though it's a kind of problematic pride that this was for a very short time a place of global importance Mm. because people were really concerned about what was going on on this little tiny island you know was he going to stay there that that kind of little moment in the sun so to speak i think i think it's quite amazing to me and this is as a historian helps to reinforce why we do what we do is that there's here's this little moment 200 years ago, and it's still so vital to so many people on an even daily basis. I don't think I'm making an overstatement by saying that. Mm. On Elba, there are people who are thinking about this little moment still today. And the relationship between, well, Elba and the wider world, certainly, but also Elba and France during this period that you're writing about, (laughs) what would you say about that? Like, I'm going to assume that no one on, not very many people in France thought about Elba before. You know, how much of a role does France and what people are thinking about Elba 
or how that's changing or whatever during this period that Napoleon's there. How much of a role does, does France play in the book? Yeah, I think that's that's important to state because I think that while Elba was where I started, it certainly had to be, I, I discovered very quickly, a, a wider story because mm. it doesn't really matter what's happening to Napoleon on Elba if nobody outside of this island cares. And my, and my archive, you know, my my archives, besides the stuff I looked at on Elba, were, were all you know, mostly in France and then uh, secondary sources. So, but a lot of primary documents from, from French archives of people thinking about Napoleon on this little island. And, and a lot of it is mocking in tone, but mm. there's also the sense of uh, a misplaced, if you will, nostalgia, or at least a sense like there was a story that we understood for better or for worse. Napoleon meant something to us. I'm talking now as a French person in mm-hmm. The wake of you know in 1814, uh, 1815, that the the Bourbon restoration is not as equally gripping a tale. Uh, It's hard to compete with Napoleon. So there's that sense. So I'm kind of shuttling back and forth between reception to the to the Bourbon restoration, obviously Talleyrand and and that regime, what they're what they're worried about competing with. And again, it comes back to the visual, and it comes back to stories. Who has a better story and how much of that story is about being uh, seen and unseen? You know, as mm-hmm. I to circle back to what I said before, the unseen Napoleon is in some way more powerful than the Napoleon they who is in France because he's not messing up. He's, he's sort of an unknown quantity, which has its own power. Well, and that's still true. Like, I think I was on I think it was on Twitter the other day. Someone had posted an image of his tomb at uh, Invalide. <laughs> and someone put the comment, somebody said something about Napoleon being here or there. And uh, someone made the comment, or is he? <laughs> <laughs> sort of where Napoleon is or isn't. I feel like it started at this moment that you're writing about this kind of rumor and intrigue and mystery and suspense about what will happen next and what's really happening. And maybe Elba was the beginning of this, I don't know, obsession with Napoleon seeming to have this quality of disappearing and appearing uh, in surprising ways, if that makes sense. For sure. And then, and then the the final exile totally is vital in that establishment of the legend. And then there were the very dramatic return of the ashes. Right. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a couple moments ago, Mark, something about your sources and the fact that some of the material was located on Elba, some of it in France. And I guess I wanted to ask you to say more about the spread geographically of your sources, but also if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the material that you looked at for this book. Like, what were you using to gain access to, well all the perspectives that are here. I mean, there's Napoleon's perspective on being on Elba in exile, but then there are all of these other characters in France, on Elba, elsewhere. So could you just talk a little bit about the genres, I guess, of material and how that led to different types of characters in this compelling story? Sure. I think without giving a a laundry list of of all the archives, maybe the, the, the most interesting for me focus was on um memoirs Mm. of people again 
who had seen him up close with this with this unprecedented access and mm-hmm. what they were thinking. There's this guy, Ponce de Leroux, who is a kind of very staunch Republican who has been on Elba for five years before Napoleon arrives and is the closest thing to a Napoleonic figure that they have on Elba um, before the arrival of the real thing. He was the director of the mines and a mining administrator, and that's the source of the local industry. So he's kind of the, you know, the godfather, if you will, of, of the island. And he writes about, uh, you know, for his whole life after this encounter, he's writing about it in, in very, uh, in several iterations, every single detail and the kind of tension between somebody that he had initially believed in. And then he gets, he's disillusioned by the empire and, uh, there's a lot of personal stuff at play there. And so that those kinds of sources were mm-hmm. really the sweet spot. So th- another one was Marie-Louise, Napoleon's second wife. She doesn't write a memoir, but there's a lot written about her that I don't think people who have written and studied, uh, written about Napoleon, especially for trade audiences, uh, have really cared about. I don't know uh, if that's because... Mm. She, she, again, seems like a minor figure or if it's just an inherent uh, chauvinism or what, whatever you want to call it. But she's, again, kind of overlooked figure. And she's, she's very interesting in her own uh, way because she doesn't come, she doesn't join Napoleon in exile. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of back and forth where she kind of intimates that she will. Mm-hmm. And yet she's kind of very much looking out for her own uh, happiness and the happiness of her of their child and very, very intelligent in the way that she manipulates the situation. And I think, you know, if in turn, I mean, I don't want to give too much of this story away, but if you are looking for winners or losers, if you can use that term, she's the one who actually wins in this moment. She kind of, she hmm. survives a long time and has a relatively uh, peaceful and happy life. And it, when it, when she very easily could have gone the other way for her. So among the cast of characters, and there's so many, Neil Campbell obviously mm-hmm. stands out. This kind of fascinating young colonel who I never heard of before. I'm just going to admit that. Okay, same, same here. <laughs> so Neil Campbell is in his 30s, Scottish uh, officer, and not a particularly distinguished one in any way, but gets this assignment, which is a very bizarre assignment, of going to observe Napoleon on uh, Elba and it's given to him by the, by the British foreign minister. And he's never really there in a, in an official capacity and he has no actual hold over Napoleon. He's just sort of the, the lone allied representative on the Island. But in a sense, he's both the warden of Elba because he's, you know, his job is to make sure Napoleon doesn't escape her if she if he is to alert people in time and yet also as napoleon himself sees uh is napoleon's window onto the rest of the world he gets napoleon news uh and napoleon realizes that he has to charm this young man in order to keep up some amount of favor with with the british especially because he's he, he he thinks that maybe there's the possibility he might one day actually be exiled to to britain uh strangely enough so it's a really bizarre strange i've used bizarre a lot i realize that but it is it's true the story is kind of strange it's it's this odd cat and mouse and what i liked about it is that with that neil campbell character with Ponce de Leroux, the iron the iron uh the mine mining administrator and with a lot of people who are in napoleon's inner circle who come with him into exile you see a lot of people who are rising the ranks quickly which is totally 
the Napoleonic story, right? He's saying part of why Napoleon was so popular in the way that he was, was he, you know, as we teach, he's part of that idea of this shift toward an, uh, the dream, whether it's real or not, that you can be born in one set of circumstances and live your life in a completely different set of circumstances, sure. right? The world is wide open. And Neil Campbell is in some ways evident of that. You know, he's, he's evidence of that. He's a guy who goes from total obscurity to being in very close proximity and having a very important role, you know, five to 10 feet away from the former emperor of France, right? And he is totally changed by the experience. And I, again, I won't give away too much of the book, but it's his, his own arc is very, is very dramatic. Is it a friendship that developed? Um, how would you describe their relationship? I'm, I don't know why I'm getting this, like, Rick and Louie and Casablanca. <laughs> well, totally. I mean, friendship is, is, a great, is a great word because you have to imagine you're just into your 30s and your whole life you've been spent, you've spent hearing about you know, your enemies are, are the French. And for a large part of your adulthood, Napoleon is the embodiment of that enemy. And Campbell's own brother had died fighting the French. Um, there's a lot of personal... Well, not personal, but there's a lot of animosity there. And then once they get kind of person to person, it does, it is close to a kind of friendship. They are certainly cordial, cordial, and, and they certainly have lengthy discussions. And I think for somebody who is a military man, there's a lot you can learn from Napoleon by sitting with these fireside chats with him. And Napoleon's bored. Napoleon has nobody to talk to. So he's happy to talk to Neil Campbell for hours and hours and hours, you know, much to the detriment of the historian pouring over the records of these conversations and trying to find what's actually interesting. He's really happy to talk about all, all sorts of strategic minutia and, and things about uh, politics and leadership and all the rest that Campbell eagerly uh, listens to. And there are char charming moments and actually there are funny moments, whether that is genuine or whether that is a kind of a more manipulative side of Napoleon is I think up for the, to the reader to decide. I tried to kind of present it as evenly as I could. So yeah, but that's, it is, it is a very central part of the story. The book is such a compelling set of stories and you've got these, what is it? 53 chapters. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that, Mark, the kind of decision to tell the story in that way. So there's the seasons as the kind of parts of the book, but then the chapters, these smaller um, stories. And then the other piece of that, question for me, I guess, about the storytelling that you do in the book is, you know, it's dramatic and also kind of funny in places. I mean, there's a comedic, I mean, there's something we've been laughing, you know, as we talk about these stories and, and how bizarre some of this stuff is. But yeah, I just wonder about whether you were looking for that type to tell that type of story, uh, whether you feel like there are other stories that you could have told about his time in Elba, whether you were trying to do this kind of more global thing. I'm just, as we've been talking, I've been thinking, wow, this would make a great film, <laughs> you know, with Steve Carell as Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> or, or just, you know, I can really see it because of the, but it speaks to this storytelling thing because the reason I can see it is because of the texture of the writing in the book. So yeah, I just wonder about, about that. Yeah. It, once I had gotten drawn to the story, there's, where well, are you going to stick with it? And are, is this actually worthy of a book or is it an article? And it was the humor and a totally unexpected humor, um, often very slapstick 
these weird moments that that kept me going and, and really made me think, okay, this is a longer and more complicated story than I'd thought. Mm-hmm. And so when I actually proposed the book, you know, I remember one of the things I said is there's this moment where Napoleon cheats at cards while playing against his mother on a little tiny island in this villa that, you know, is not that much bigger than, you know, you know it's, it's a couple of rooms or whatever. It's a few rooms. If you think the idea of Napoleon cheating at cards with his mother is hilarious, then this might be, you know, a book that you'd be interested in. If you think that's just dumb, then like we, we can't even start the conversation because <laughs> it's, it's, it's those types of moments that are without diminishing that. I think that this is a kind of, you know, there's, there are deeper parts of the book. It's not about, you know, it's not just a burlesque, but I, those are kind of what I thought gives it a kind of light lightness and a kind of uh, enjoyment that merits a larger project for me. Mm-hmm. And kept me kept me going because, um, as I said, like the, the the Napoleon personality is is a lot to deal with on a daily basis sure. for for years of research, and and it was again these the, the setting and the, the secondary characters, and like I don't know, I've had this debate with other historians of especially of my generation is do we think cinematically because we're just so inundated by moving pictures and as a way of storytelling and does that seep into the writing and are we all frustrated screenwriters i mean i don't know i hope not i hope that this is you know this is a literary exercise and and there are literary merits to it but that being said there is there is a definite episodic quality a kind of staccato quality to the way i laid it out with Mm -hmm. these very short chapters all i can say is that that was not a conscious choice. It just kind of happened. And apparently I did it with my last book as well. So I guess we could set a bunch of doctors from Vienna to tell me if there's something in my deep subconscious that makes me think that way, or do I have a bad attention span? Or I don't know what it is, but it, it is. it just has been the way that I've written is these kind of televery, maybe it's like short stories in a sense. I don't, I don't know. Well, there is something as a reader. I mean, I've thought about this after reading a couple of different types of books with this kind of structure, I don't know why it's easier and more enjoyable to read a book in multiple short chapters. I mean, the psychology of that is probably really simple. <laughs> the totally. Kind of, and somebody, the, whatever the, you know, the dopamine hit you get from finishing a chapter and feeling like you've accomplished something um, over and over and over again. But yeah, so we could we should, we could we should call up some some literary theory people to tell us there is there must be some yeah I, I, we all we've all done this as readers right you're waiting for the chapter to end so you can put book down for a bit and sometimes those those don't come quickly enough sometimes they come too quickly um, yeah why do we have chapters I don't know it's it's it must be some inherent way that we understand and digest stories well and I think in this book the episodic quality really reinforces your project which is to look at closely the everydayness of mm-hmm. Napoleon and of this time that he spends in exile. And so I think it, again, to use that visual of the snapshot or whatever, I think it works because it moves away from the grandiose narrative of the big Napoleon story to give us these little moments and episodes, even though, of course, it's all situated within this larger narrative. And I, I wanted to ask you, about that, I mean, we know how things work out for the most part. I mean, the broad strokes anyway. So, you know, writing this book about an in-between, what comes at the end of it, you know, the escape and the return to, to Europe and then, you know, the 100 days in Waterloo. 
So how, but the book is still kind of suspenseful. And I wondered about that, you know, as a writer, but then also, you know, whether it's historiographically or biographically, what do you think this time on Elba tells us about the way the story ends or how it ends that what did Elba do <laughs> to mm-hmm. make the hundred days possible to make Waterloo possible or likely do you think that there's a connection between this in between and, and the bigger ticket that people know about that happens after? I think that question again, really brings back some really pleasant memories of my first couple of years as an undergraduate learning history, when you get beyond the high school textbook version and you see just how contingent and chaotic and ad hoc it all is. And mm-hmm. there are these just little moments that totally shift things and they could have gone some other way. And it's kind of a revelation when you see history that way of like, you think all of these institutions and ways of being are so set in stone and you realize it's actually totally not the case you know it's all it's all a lot more chaotic than that and so that was part of the project here was to say could i take something where we all know the ending and still make it suspenseful and of course the answer is yes because we still don't know there's always the how and the why's and why did it go that way and it is you know as i said earlier on when you asked why did they send him there there are still these answers that are the questions that i can't possibly fully answer. How did he actually pull it off? Uh, I kind of narrate it and I show mm-hmm. a lot of the factors that went into it. There's no really great explanation that, that could, can't be argued against. It says it had to be this way. And he had, it's totally an unlikely story. And that was, that was part of the thinking that went into the writing of, of just as we all learn as historians, you know, you have to go in without hindsight, right? You have to place yourself in the moment and, and what it would have felt like, um, and how chaotic it would have been on the ground. Now, the other thing we learn in our scholarly training is you don't want to think history doesn't really work in story mode, right? It's not as tidy as that. So we also have to push against that. Mm-hmm. And yet I find, as I, and I think by writing, I mean, that's how I kind of think through things. I found that about halfway or maybe three quarters way into the project, there was a kind of inherent way of telling the story besides just the seasons that I brought up and that it did kind of fit into a genre in its own way and a kind of complicated or messy way. It is a bit of a jailbreak story. It's it. And it brought me back to another, one of my very favorite movies is down by law by Jim <laughs> Jarmusch great. with Tom Waits and there. I, and I watched that movie like three times while writing the book because it, <laughs> it's, it just, that, that makes sense. <laughs> isn't it? Well, it's, it's a lovely movie. I just, I really yeah, it's I, great. can't recommend it enough. But like jailbreak stories where there's the great escape is the other, you know, jailbreak stories, there's a kind of genre there. And, and once I saw that this was in a sense a jailbreak story, it opened up a lot of possibilities of how to, how to frame things uh, in the narrative. Um, I know that there are a lot of surprising moments in the book and probably were for, you probably experienced a lot of surprises along the way as you were, getting into this project and doing the research. And I don't want to make you choose like, what was the most surprising thing you learned about Napoleon Alba? But is there something or a couple of things that you would highlight as things you just really weren't, didn't expect to come across in terms of sources or events or moments from this, this episode in Napoleon's life? The things that were most surprising were, were, were a few and again, without excusing Napoleon's 
political activities or, or anything else in, in his life, there were a few unexpectedly touching moments with his family, with his sister, with his mother, with his wife, mm. uh, with his child. You know, it's interesting to see him as human and suffering and all those kinds of things. That was kind of unexpected. But what I think the biggest kind of reveal, discovery, I should say, by the end of the book, by the end of writing the book, was I was a lot, it was a lot sadder than I, I, than I thought it would be, the mm. story. Anyone with a sort of, well, almost not the right word, but a different kind of makeup would have approached this moment totally differently and saved a lot of people from dying needlessly in, at Waterloo, especially. Mm. And that there was everything for him to just bow out gracefully and retire. And why couldn't he do that? And the reasons that I came up with, which are sort of the epilogue of the book, so I won't mm-hmm. say too much about it here, are sort of sad. I, fa- I found it a little bit sad. So that's I mean, not to be a downer, but that was that was kind yeah. of, and needless suffering and needless dying is, of course, always sad. Do you feel like you found by the end of this project an alignment between, I mean, you kind of hinted at it just now, the like ideological Napoleon. I mean, again, I'm thinking about the lecture I give about mm-hmm. Napoleon at home and Napoleon on the go, like internationally. Right. And, you know, the policies in the Bank of France and like these big things. I talk about Napoleon in the, and we all do. I probably stole my way of doing it from somebody along the way. And Napoleon, this human, as you say, like, and I don't want to spoil everything, mm-hmm. but do you think ultimately the return, we think of it as a military story. We think of it as about the conquest or the re- reconquering of the empire and Europe and this global vision and all of these things. But do you think that the, the human dimension of just wanting your seat back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just wanting to go out heroically, uh, that that outweighs the the big picture? I think that maybe the way of saying it is that the personal fuses with the ideological mm in a way that maybe maybe is modern and a 19th century phenomenon, or maybe you could say that's about, you know, these people with absolute power uh, over sure. centuries. It's, it's a kind of common story of the idea that this, this heavily, the Napoleonic legend influences Napoleon the man so that he does what he does because it's what Napoleon, the character, is should be seen to be doing. I say some version of that much more eloquently in the book. You know, I guess you could say today he believes his own hype, right? And he has to kind of <laughs> he has to kind of live up to it in a sense. Right. And that's to put a finer point on the sadness I'm talking about. That's kind of sad. Mm. There is that sadness of of the power of the symbolism of Napoleon dictating what this actual human is doing and the destruction he's causing in the name of that symbol. Well, and I guess as a researcher and a writer too, you're we talked about this sort of earlier on that at the same time that this book is, I think, pushing against some of the 7,000 page biography myth building in the sense that you're telling these more intimate and sometimes everyday, you know, stories about this period of time that he spent on Elba, you'll, (laughs) the book inevitably becomes a part too of, you know, it is this bizarre story and this set of stories and this fascinating period of time that then leads to, again, the next epic chapter in 
I guess, the closing chapters of, of his career and, and that biography. So it is interesting to me how, yeah, a book like this, the person who doesn't care about Napoleon can really enjoy it, but the person who cares about Napoleon can also really enjoy it because it does have a lot of pizzazz <laughs> a set of stories. It does have this kind of mythological, I mean, even the card cheating thing. I mean, who doesn't want an anecdote about Napoleon cheating at cards while he's playing against his mom? <laughs> it's kind of great. Yeah. And, but there's this, there is this line to tread of like, mm. on the one hand, the real you know drive is to say, look, I'm questioning, why did this pile of books about Napoleon get as high as it has? And mm-hmm. so, you know, and what is the, what are we responding to and questioning the myth? Not necessarily trying to debunk, but just sort of sure. questioning it. And yet, I am totally complicit. I am. This is one more little, tiny, you know, stroke in the giant picture of the Napoleonic legend. You know, and that's something I have to be conscious about as well. Um, and there's no real simple answer on how to do that. You know, sure. To be critical about myth making and then also uh, part of the problem in a sense. Well, Mark, there are so many questions I would like to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you one more, which mm-hmm. is, what book are you writing now that we can talk about in two or three years from now? So, no pressure. The, no, no. In the, it, I have my my current project, but in the course of this conversation, I've been thinking about how does it fit into the you know things we've been talking about, and I guess it's another miniature in a sense. It's another one of looking at a very small space. Um, I'm writing about Montparnasse in the 20s, which is another extremely well-worn subject. Um, but I hope that I have an, a sort of different way in, and that is through the lens of the life of Kiki de Montparnasse, whose birth name is Alice Plain, who usually is remembered as the so-called muse of Man Ray uh, and other artists, You know, somebody who, who was a very famous artist model in the 20s and posed for these iconic photographs by Man Ray. Um, and what I'm trying to argue in the book is actually in the 1920s, she's far more influential and important an artist herself in in Paris. And that her life story is totally fascinating. She wrote a best-selling memoir when she was all of something like 29. Hemingway wrote the preface. Um, She painted, she was a cabaret performer. She drew, she was a kind of performance artist, multi-hyphenate artist. And so I want to write about her life, you know, whether that goes anywhere or not, we'll see. But again, it's all about Montparnasse in the 20s, so another very small canvas on which to work. Well, that just sounds fantastic. So don't hold me to that, but we'll see. <laughs> I will. I I'll, I'll go back and listen to this recording the next time we speak and see okay. if you promise. See if that's actually where I went. The, the same next project. Well, Mark, I just want to thank you so much for joining me a second time and for writing the book. Thanks. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.